0: You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to Ferrari and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis.
1: This episode of our podcast today is sponsored by
0: Hoof Care Essentials Foundation partner, GE Forge & Tool.
1: My latest podcast guest is Steve Crosby, who I caught up with during a visit to Queensland, Australia in 2019. And this was just prior to the biggest Southern Hemisphere barrier competition, uh, where I was judging and Steve was uh, organiser, really, and uh, in charge of all the data and and the scores, which, of course, judges just have to put the score down. But it's the people that record it that are important. We were, of course, on the eastern edge of this vast uh, continent of Australia, uh, and and you'll get a feeling for some of the distances during the podcast. Of course, Steve, he was with horses and shod from an early age, but we're going to explore that. But he did try getting away from shoeing, uh, and he tried office work, uh, and you'll see he found that the indoor life really wasn't for him. It's a real insight into the Australian culture, but I'll let you listen to it and make your own mind up about Australia and Steve Crosby. I'm in Queensland for the Echo competition. And if you don't know what that is, we're gonna go into that in a few minutes. And I've stopped off with Steve Crosby who's been looking after me uh, and we're taking the chance to talk about his life in racing, uh, the Echo competition, and one or two other things. Hello, Steve. Hello, Simon, it's good to be here with you. Good, thank you. Okay, so how long has your family been in Australia? Uh, you know, I'm talking about a few generations back.
0: Yeah, I think my great-grandfather was the um, one that came over on my mother's side Um, he was actually a blacksmith Um, both my great-grandfathers were blacksmiths and that's why they came from England Um, and both my grandfathers actually were blacksmiths but they didn't shoe horses they worked at the sugar refinery in Bundaberg so I suppose I've sort of followed a bit of a family tradition even though my own father um, he had nothing to do with horses per se he was an owner of racehorses and that's how I got involved in it from a small child but he was actually the manager of a tyre company of a company called Uni Royal um, I don't think they they don't exist in Australia anymore they were bought out by Bridgestone many years ago but he was the manager for the Eastern Seaboard Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria so I've joked to a few people that you know because he was in the tyre business i sort of yeah. in the same thing
1: really, with horses' feet. (laughs) It's a sort of analogy where you're going backwards, aren't you? Yeah. (laughs) The horse haven't existed a long time before. Um, Okay, before we... Have your family always been in Queensland or other parts of Australia?
0: Uh, I think my mum's... My mother's parents were from Victoria originally, uh, and they they moved up to Bundaberg. uh, But all all my um, brothers and sisters and my parents were all born in Queensland, so I'm...
1: Queensland, through and through. And just to give people an idea that don't know, Queensland is a sort of vast area of Australia that's in the northeast. Uh, Brisbane sits fairly low in it, doesn't it? Yeah, it's
0: about, about an hour from the border, so it's yeah. on the on the eastern seaboard. And right how long
1: would How many kilometres is it to the north to oh, Darwin or somewhere?
0: Oh, thousands. <laughs> yes. Yeah, a long way.
1: Yeah, so it takes uh, probably a couple of hours to fly across Queensland. Um,
0: yes, I, I think to fly all the way across Australia is five hours from yeah. Brisbane to Perth and from here to Cairns is about a bit over two hours. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to fly out west, you, you'd be looking at a couple of hours. Yeah. I've often said to people that are from overseas that you have to be very careful in Australia where you are when you ask someone how far it is to anywhere. Uh, if you're in the city and you say how far to somewhere and they say, oh, it's a couple of mile, it's literally a couple of mile. But the further inland you go, if they say, oh, it's a few mile, it could be four hours drive is what they call a few
1: miles. So yeah. you've got to be careful who you ask. So, all right, tell me something about Echo with this peculiar name. Well, it's a typical
0: Australian thing. Every, everything gets... Shortened, you know, we don't don't use the full name. So it's actually called the Brisbane Exhibition. So it's our royal show. Um, each capital city in Australia has their royal show. So the Brisbane Exhibition, you know.
1: So it's, it's a, a corruption of exhibition down to Ecker. That's right. It's a bit of a corruption of the English language, I suppose. <laughs> well, it's great. There's no,
0: it? no Ks in exhibition, but we put a couple mm-hmm. in and shorten it and make yeah. it Ecker. So...
1: And of course, the part that you're involved with, and I'm involved with, is the the farrier and blacksmith competition, isn't it? Over three days. That's right. Yeah, three
0: full days. It's a huge program. This is probably the biggest it's ever been. Uh, Each year, it's grown more and more. Um, I think, looking at the competitor numbers, we're up to like 94. If you add in all the people that have just put something in the blacksmithing, but as far as farriers, we'd be up around the 70, 75 yeah. entrance. So
1: This is starting to frighten me, but I have got a co-judge. so And with your help, maybe I'll get through it. Yeah, I'm sure you will, and we'll provide you with <laughs> cups of tea and
0: any, any sustenance that you may need along the way. But it, it has become that big. We used to always have one judge, but it, it became so big, such a big job that we decided a couple of years ago that we had to split it and... Make it um, two judges, just to make it a bit easier on the judge.
1: Yeah. Okay, Steve. Let's get back to uh, how you got into farriery and in your earlier part of your life. So I I know you had a you have a bachelor of science in information technology, and uh, I wondered how you got that and why you got it.
0: Yes, I I did university. I uh, went to university when I was 23. I was already a farrier. I started as a farrier at 15, but I'd had a bit of a bit of a run of injuries, and um, getting work was a bit competitive back then. It was a bit difficult, and I'd sort of decided that it was I'd had enough, and I was going to do something else. And I wasn't sure what else I could do, and I thought, well, computing seems to be the way to go. So I decided I'd. Um, go to university and because I didn't have grade 12 which is the normal the thing that you need in Australia to get a what's called a TE score which is tertiary entrance score um, I had to do what they call the mature age exam so you'd go there with thousands of people and you couldn't really study for the exam because you had no idea what they were going to give you um, but it was uh, maths and English and lots of things um, so I sat sat that and and I think the TEs go went from five fifty was the lowest to nine ninety and I got nine oh two. So that was more than high enough to get me into the course that I wanted. So I did a Bachelor of Information Technology majoring in software engineering. It was a bit of a steep learning curve with with no background in it, but um and I was still working as a Farrier at the time too, so I was doing uni full time and almost full time as a farrier. i'd quite often be up at four o'clock in the morning and go and shoe a couple of horses to get to uni for an eight-thirty lecture and i might disappear during the middle of the day and go and do some more work and come back in the afternoon if i had a break um occasionally you'd have a day where you didn't have any horses to shoe so i could just go to uni but um you just fitted things in where you where you could and you worked on the weekends if you had to and you did assignments late at night and you just Found a way to get through so but I, I got all the way through finished my degree um and i did a two week contract at a place and hated it <laughs> i was it was beautiful sunny weather and i was locked inside and every opportunity i had i'd go outside and clear my head and i thought i can't, I can't do this um, so i just kept shoeing horses and I, I was fortunate at the time a good friend of mine, Kerry Ireland, um, was shooing in Brisbane as well. And, and he left and was going to Sydney. And he said, look, I'll pass you some of my clients if you want. And um, and I said, yeah, look, I appreciate that. So he pushed me on a couple of his clients and it just rolled from there. And the, before I knew it, I was as busy
1: as I really wanted to be. So, And, uh, and your business then was almost exclusively racehorses yes. on the track. racehorses um but it has it has changed slightly now hasn't it
0: yeah i'm i'm in my 50s now and you know physically you sort of feel the pinch with young horses so i've sort of cut back the amount of racehorses i do i only do two racing stables these days and the rest of my work is um pleasure horses so i'm finding that nice you know some some quieter horses to work on i still love racehorses i'm I'm a racing person, it's, it's in me, you know. That even if I wasn't chewing at all, I'd still be looking at the racing news to see what's going on. And, you know. I think once, once you're involved in racing, it's just part of your blood and it would never leave you. So.
1: And you look after the two tracks near here, don't you? Um, I wouldn't say Doom Bar, but that's a big thing. No, Doom Ben. Doom Ben, yes. All right, Doom Ben and Eagle Lane. Eagle Farm. Farm. That, that's why I've to all this stuff strange names. No, but if people knew there is a straight road that just splits the two of them. That's right. They're across the road from each
0: other. I think it's pretty unique in the world. I don't think yeah. you find two racecourses and two metropolitan
1: racecourses like not separated have, by a, a single road. Yeah. No, so. it's, it, it's quite amazing. So, so you when you shoe the, the, the horses here in Australia, they basically start in steel concave but once they go into aluminium to race they stay in them that's right
0: yeah same as um a lot of places do it these days um they have really good quality plates now so they just shoe the horses up in the plates and they just stay in them but but i came through in the days where the racing plates were very thin and there was no steel insert or no clips on them and the horses had to walk to and from the track so you couldn't leave aluminium on them because they would wear them out very very quickly so my my week would be shoeing horses all day and if there were races that day you would go in and you would take the steel shoes off and put the plates on for the day and then put the shoes back on those horses after they raced so you would work really hard during the week uh, i sort of made the mistake as a kid of working for probably two of the busiest ferries in Queensland. And so the workload was, was quite high. And then you get to the end of the week and then Saturday morning would be your busiest time because you could have anywhere from 15 to 20 or 25 to plate. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: and you had to take the shoes off, get the plates on and then, um, you could go to the races, um, depending on who you work for, um, and you could spend your afternoon at the races putting the shoes back on them after they've raced. So it's very labour intensive. And you try to explain it to the younger guys now and they just don't Well, do I,
1: I did see it when I went to uh, Randwick, well, oh, I don't know, well over 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, the guys walking around in the afternoon re-shoeing yeah. the horses.
0: I only stopped plating all my runners on race day about eight years ago when they uh, built Encore Stabling. Um, So once they had stables on the race course, you could shoe them up in plates and leave them on because they they could easily get three weeks out of that set of plates. But up until then, horses walking the bitumen roads to and from the track, they would just wear them out too quickly, so it just wasn't an option. You just had to do it the old-fashioned way.
1: So I think you told me today that you have a shoeing schedule for steel of four weeks, but aluminium...
0: 21 days for
1: aluminium. So they could stay in the whole season. They can stay in six months, nine months in harmony. Yep. Yeah, no problem. So the other thing I noticed was that you use five nails basically as a rule, don't you?
0: Pretty much. Um, the bigger horses on their hinds, I might use six. But the reason I use five is you can start off with a really nice foot on a thoroughbred, and if they have a very long campaign, and you're getting shot every, quite three, a, week. every three weeks. It only only takes a few pieces to fall out, and all of a sudden you're looking for somewhere to nail. So, I I use five nails, and I usually always put three to the inside. But because I use five, I can change. I can move my nail pattern around. So, if one side's getting a bit, a bit of a pin cushion, I can put two in that side and have three on the other. And because the horses are stabled on course, they're not wearing their shoes out. So the the chance of me needing to have six nails in to keep the shoe there is much reduced so it, it, i just find i can manage their feet a lot better if, if i move my nail pattern around so i might use the first and third hole that shoeing and the next shoeing i'll use the second and the fourth and then i can move it back mm. so I'm, i've always got nice new foot to nail to each, each time i'm doing
1: them. now you you told me something about uh the culture of australian racing in, I think you told me that every town has a pub a post office and a racetrack. That's exactly right. You
0: would be hard-pressed to find many country towns in Queensland that don't have a race course. You know, the the, the number of race clubs would be phenomenal if you if you listed them.
1: Yeah. You
0: literally would do go into really small towns and there's nothing there, but on the outskirts of town there's a race course.
1: Yeah, and you said some of those they don't even race one day yeah, a year. There's,
0: yeah, there's quite a few that race once a year and they, they're they usually huge events because people, they're big social events for the people in the area so it's just a chance for them to get together, like especially a, in... Like a, a
1: town festival.
0: Pretty much, yeah. So especially when, if, if it's a bit dry and times are tough and, you know, it's a bit of a stress relief for some of the people in those communities I think. But, you know, we have some huge race meetings in Western Queensland that you know, people fly in and we only have to look at Birdsville, you know. It's as far west as you can get in Queensland. It's almost on the South Australian border, uh, and I think all there is there is a pub, and a general store, and a race course.
1: Yeah, you know, as you said, what more do you need? Know? That's, that's right. That's the minimum. That's, that's the what's necessary. Sorry. All right. So you've been the duty uh, area on the on the race course, haven't you? On race day,
0: I have. Yes.
1: Uh, and what does that entail? Well, the
0: race clubs, especially in the metropolitan area, they always have two farriers. There's the guy who they say works in the stalls, so he's there if something shifts a plate or arrives at the track and it's not plated. And then you have another farrier that they call the shoeing inspector, who he stands at the enclosure as the horses come in, checks to make sure that they're one they're actually plated and two that they're all tight. And then he goes around to the barriers just in case anything happens on the way round or horse pulls a gate pulls the plate behind the barrier but it's mostly to do with um, jockey safety you know the jockeys don't want a plate coming back to hit them. it still, it still happens in a race that a yeah. horse loses the plate but if at least you know that all the horses have been checked and they are all got four plates on and they're all tight then the chances of that happening uh, are greatly reduced so and it's for the horse's safety as well you don't want anything to happen yeah. so But predominantly, my way of thinking was always the jockey safety, make sure nothing's going to fly back and hit them. And then, of secondary, was the horse's safety.
1: Yeah. And I told you that I was only ever once a race course farrier. I put my tools down at eight in the morning. Nothing came in with a loose plate. Nothing spread a plate during the races. I picked my tools up at five o'clock and went home, and I thought that was the most boring day of my life. But... As you said, sometimes... I loved those
0: days. <laughs> well, I loved them. If I, if I could put my gear down and not have to do anything for the day, that was a great day. Yeah. But then you'd have a day like that and then the <laughs> next day, you'd be run off your feet.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, everybody would be coming to get you. Oh, this has just pulled one off or this has kicked one off and the float on the way to the races or...
1: And um, the problem is, you don't know those horses, do you? That's right. They're often full of adrenaline. That's right. they're in a different place. Yeah, stressed. Or they actually know... Is There's going to be a race. They're like cage lions, some of them. Yeah,
0: and that's not their fault. They're just no. They're just um, heightened. They're super fit, full of super feed, so they're just a product of their environment, you know.
1: Yeah, so it's a particular skill. Well, to stay safe for a start.
0: Well, yes, yeah, so I've had a had a few um, few hairy ones to do at the races. I I did have one once that um, I actually had to play it all the way around, and it was just a lather of sweat and was playing up. And I'm trying to do the hinds, and it's throwing me everywhere. And the the trainer said, "I'll turn it around and face it in, I'll see if it's better." You know, and I thought, okay. So he turned it around. So so the the rear end of the horse is facing the crowd, and I was only an apprentice then, and you know I was probably about fifty kilos at that stage, and this thing let fly, and I went one bounce out under the rail. And into the crowd and took skin off my elbows and and i'm picking my tools up and a guy leaned down and he said you're not going back in there are you and i said i have to i said i still got to get the other hind on it yeah (laughs) yeah Yeah. so the horse was there to race and that's why we were there so you you know in in those days you, you couldn't say oh no i'm
1: not going to do this one you just had to find a way to get it done so yeah and even if they had the sedation, which they did, well, you couldn't do you it, couldn't, it. You, you could you not know, do it anymore. Anyway. Horse races, no. Yeah, so that's quite an experience, but you don't do that anymore, then. No, I'm way too old <laughs> for that. Way too old. <laughs> but you, I know you do referral referral work on the on the racetrack, um, So just tell me something about the sort of cases you see.
0: Well, usually the the predominant thing you get with thoroughbreds because they've got a lighter hoof capsule, thinner sole they're pre- predominantly prone to get sore heels and collapsed heels and quarter cracks and you know feet that you can't get a nail into. So sometimes um, I'll get called into one that's got a heel problem or something like that, and either I'll make bar shoes for it or may rebuild its heels with synthetic material, which i um, so thankful we have these days. I think of all the horses and years gone by that I probably could have helped had I, had I had that. Um, but the people I worked for, they seemed to get by without it. So I don't remember too many horses having to go for a spell because they couldn't get a shoe on it. No, we had to shoe them. They had to, they, they found were... a way. The, yeah. I can remember I, the guy that taught me to shoe, Andy Fraser, uh, great, great farrier, probably the best horseman I've ever seen, bar none. He can ride, shoe, break in, you name it. But he was predominantly a farrier. And I used to see some of the feet that he had to work on. And these were horses that had to be shod and then plated every time they raced. So if they were a good horse, sometimes they'd race three weeks in a row. So that's six times shoes on and off. And I remember one particular horse, uh, he was a really good stayer called Rock Show. And his feet were that bad, Andy wouldn't even let me take the shoes off him uh, for fear of tearing away a bit of foot. And how he managed to get plates on him and, keep, and he was sound, kept him sound the whole time, it was
1: phenomenal effort. Well, my, my record was because that was the, the world I was in, I mm. uh, was 11 sets in one month on one horse. Wow, yeah, well, that's. So that's only just over twice a week. Yeah. And, and so I know what it was like. You had to try and find good old nail holes. Yeah. None of this trying to find a fresh nail hole.
0: Yeah, yeah if you could reuse something, you wouldn't. You just think, oh, if I can use these holes today, next week I'm going to trim him up. So that means I'll get yeah. some more new. So you're always trying to plan ahead. But yeah, I used to look at some of the feet that, that Andy would do that I that yeah. I didn't do.
1: Looked like a tea bag. Well, that's right.
0: It was just, yeah. but what could you do? Yeah, you had, you had to get them on.
1: You said something really interesting about when they moved the stables because this morning... I was with you and the stables are mm. only two years old and they've moved across the road and the environment has totally changed, hasn't it? They Completely, had, yeah. They had dirt floors where when it rained, the, the the water came up through the floor, didn't
0: it? Yeah, it wasn't all the stables. Mm. Uh, just after we had e, the Ei breakout here in 2011, I think, and the track work stalls... I don't it, know what the EI, what We We had equine influenza oh, okay. breakout in all Australia. Right. Um, and they converted the tie-up stalls at Eagle Farm into actual stabling. Um, So they were never designed to be stables. It was all temporary until the new stables got built in the infield, where they are now. Um, But there was only so many they could build, and they actually put up some more sheds and put portable stables in there for other trainers that could move here. And where some of them were built, that area used to get quite wet when it rained, so even though the rain wouldn't come in through the building you the water would come up through the floor uh through the dirt floors, and the shavings would just get wet. There was just nothing they could do. I must say were digging them out every day, and it just played havoc on the feet they were just too soft, and you you know some of the farriers were just tearing the hair out they were just having you know, good farriers doing a great job, but horses just getting sore in yeah. the heel. And I remember saying to them, just got to hang in there once we get out in the new stables because it's elevated position, concrete floors. As soon as they went out there, their feet dried up and, you know, guys that were having all sorts of trouble, all of a sudden their problems all just went away and nice sound horses. And
1: That you know, just shows you just a slight change. change in your, environment, yeah. Yeah, move them. Only a couple of hundred yards, but um, mm-hmm. but just changing the stable floor, yeah. the, the effect it had on the feet. Uh, so anyway, I I know that, um, well, I, I had met you before, but um, quite a bit before actually, Steve, but then you went on and took the associate, well, first the diploma, yeah. and then the associate uh, when it was run here in Australia, in yeah. Melbourne. Um, how did you prepare for that? well the only way you can really
0: prepare for those things is if you download the the syllabus on the the Worshipful company website you really don't have any questions because they tell you exactly what you need to know so you just start at the first thing which is bones and so you find out as much as you can about every bone that you need to know about and then you move on to tendons and ligaments so really just have to be methodical um so i'll probably just applied the same principle I did when I was at university, you would have so much information. So I would read a page out of a textbook and I would condense that down to maybe a paragraph of the most important things. So, because a lot of what's written in a textbook, um, you can take pieces out of it and, and condense it and it still makes sense and gives you the, the concept. So I was able to condense lots of pages out of textbooks into a a lot smaller amount to study so you really just have a summary of something and straight away as soon as i read that summary it'd all come back into my head and i go yep okay i remember all that so i did that i condensed all the notes down same way i did at university Um, but i had a good friend in melbourne dean lewis we were studying together and we would send each other a question and we'd do practice exams so I had a pile of essay questions that I'd practiced yeah. long before the exam because um, it's a skill you need to practice. You know, It's all right to read and study, but actually answering the question, you can't expect to do that if you haven't practiced it. So we would say, okay, seven o'clock tonight, we'll send each other a question without notice and we'd just set the clock for 30 minutes and we'd write our response and and it was just between the two of us, so we were completely honest. We wouldn't look at the textbook. We wouldn't. Yeah. There was no point doing that because well, you're only you're ch- ch- exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: And and there were a few times that you know Dean had sent me a question and I'd go, oh god, I haven't looked at that for ages. You know, and you you yeah. try and pull something out of your head to write down, and then you take a photo of it, and we'd send it to each other, and we'd say, oh, maybe you maybe should have mentioned this or yeah, you know. Um. So I got to admit, without Dean, you know. He probably would have got through
1: without me, but I doubt that I would have got through wow. without him. I think you'd be a moist. Think, I think Dean needs as much help as possible. <laughs> <laughs> I hope he hears this. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we should be seeing him, shouldn't we? He's we will. Out. He'll be here competing. Yeah. So, yeah, no,
0: he's a great guy, great farrier, great blacksmith. So Patriot, a, isn't he? He's a, he's a
1: patriot, yeah, ex-military. Yeah. So he's... Yeah, he's a lovely fellow. Yeah, yeah. And, um... All right, so I, at this point, I need to ask you the deep philosophical question because right. uh, we're getting towards the end of our conversation, Steve. So what I'd like to know is um, what is the most important thing that you've learned in life? Probably two things, not I mean,
0: one, two. I'll allow you to. You'll allow me to? Yeah. Uh, when, I was, when I was a kid working for Andy in Toomba, the most important thing he taught me was to be your own worst critic. He said if you criticize yourself and always look to get better, he said you can't help but improve. So, you know, his thing was if you want to be good at horseshoeing, if you want to be good, you will be. You really have to teach yourself. He said, "I can show you the steps and and all the things I do today, you know, how I trim, how I clinch, how I or all the things, I can still hear his voice in my head, do this like this, do this like this. So he just continue to refine the process. So that's probably the best thing I've learned is to be your own worst critic Uh and and you'll get better at things. But um as a general... So that's to work. Number one, is, yeah. Number one. So as, as a general thing, um, I've always been a goal-orientated sort of person. I always need something to work towards. I, I can't just be... Getting up and going to work and coming home, I always need a carrot in front of me. But I saw a really good quote that summed it up for me. Uh, I can't remember who put it up, but it was, um, "Don't be put off by how long it takes to achieve something because the time will pass anyway." So, I thought, you know, that's the a reason to do something. If it's going to take you two years or three years, whatever, it's gonna the time's going to pass. Everybody
1: said to me, "How can you spend six years?" Doing a PhD, so that fits in. Yeah. I wish I, I wish you'd told me this <laughs> before I started, but that's exactly it. The, yeah. the time does pass, and when you look back, you think Why it took I no don't... time at all. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Steve, look, it's been great uh, speaking to you. Thanks for all your info. I know you've got to get down to Ecca and sort out yes, some of the that. stations with some of the other guys. Yeah. I've got to check into my uh, apartment. And, uh, and sort out a few things. I'll look through the papers of the 16 classes and check out what, what the it's judging it's... requirements are. Yeah. So we're both gonna be busy. But anyway, thank you for your time. That's all right, it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. All right, mate. As always, we covered an awful lot in a relatively short time. Steve was a great person to interview for a podcast Uh, we looked at the problems of repetitive shoeing and the effect of the environment on shoes and uh, sorry on hooves and very small changes in the environment having quite big effects. We learned that uh, Australian towns have a pub a post office and a race course and I always knew Uh, The culture of racing is probably more embedded in Australia than any other country on earth. But we looked at technical issues. Um, I was quite surprised when Steve told me he just used five nails on a shoe. And actually, that was usually three on the inside and two on the outside. So that sort of almost counters traditional shoeing. Uh, But he told you why he did that. Once the podcast was over... I went on to judge the Southern Hemisphere Farrier Championship and Steve looked after me really well. I also recorded Steve Crosby's life in pictures and he was one of the many farriers that I uh, photographed for my book, The Farrier. And you can find that at Curtis Farrier Books where you'll be able to see many of the characters uh, that make up This series of podcasts. It was a great experience and I hope you've enjoyed this latest podcast.
0: We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.